Good morning. Was that loud enough? Good morning. Yeah, they said it wasn't loud enough. Let's beat that, okay? Good morning. Good morning. There you go. Now I'm happy. Now we can get started. We uh, we've been studying uh, the man of sin. This make lesson four, and this is the final one. Uh, <laughs> This, uh, this is basically a summary of what we've been discussing thus far. And uh, I think this will give you enough information on our website where you can go back and study this material in more detail and uh, see where I was coming from, what I was laying out. Uh, basically what Bill read just a moment ago, if we outline it, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Falling away from the church. It's going to be a major falling away. We've seen where there were many different kinds of falling aways, but there's going to be one that's different than any other falling away. It will be a massive falling away. After that, during that time, the Church of Christ becomes very, very, very small, smothered out by this uh, result of the falling away. It becomes uh, big, it becomes very powerful, and in the process over the next two, three hundred years, the Church of Christ is going to become almost extinct. Not extinct, but there will always be believers somewhere who worship God according to his manner, Always have existed, always will exist, at least until the Lord returns. And this is kind of what took place with the church during this period. Well, this, this, this result of the falling away continued to grow, became stronger and stronger and stronger, became so strong, as a matter of fact, that finally there had to be a leader appointed. There was one appointed by, uh, I forgot which emperor it was, but uh, he uh, appointed Boniface III to be the first pope over the uh, papal church. The man of sin would be revealed. Now, the man of sin is a type of a dynasty. In other words, uh, the man of sin is like a title, like the presidency of the United States. Even though there's a, a one presidency, there have been many presidents that served under that designation. And so it is in this case, this man of sin, that's going to be a title that's applied to this character, and it's going to be followed by multiple people through the years because this is going to last until Christ comes back. Jesus will destroy it when he returns and everything it has to do with. We've covered all this in great detail. Some of the traits of the man of sin. Uh, we talked just briefly last week about the first lawlessness. Uh, according to Thomas Newton, uh, the Pope doeth whatsoever he listeth, whatsoever he wills, he does what he chooses. Even things that are unlawful, should he choose to do so, and he is more than God. Donald Atwater, uh, an apologist for Catholicism, said tradition is superior to the scriptures. 
tradition is the voice of the church. It's superior to the scriptures. That's very uh, reminiscent of the Talmud and the rabbis where they put, placed the Talmud, uh, the traditions of the rabbis, they placed that above the law of Moses. That was most important, and the law was secondary. And so it would be with a man of sin. The voice of the church would be primary. The voice of God would be secondary. The second characteristic we looked at as we studied was he will be God-opposing, 2 Thessalonians 2 and 4. The Pope is more than God. I don't think anything can be said that demonstrates the fact that this man of sin is going to be God-opposing. The, the very audacity of one claiming to be more than God is beyond belief. But that was the general thinking of the man of sin during those years. Thirdly, he's going to be a usurper of the divine status, Second uh, Thessalonians 2 and 4 again. Papal rulers sit in the temple of God, that is the church. Papal rulers rule over the church of Christ. Uh, the church didn't have a name back in the 7th century. It was just the church. It was so big, it was just the church. And the papal ruler is the one who sits in the temple. You remember God in the uh, Old Testament days, God sat in the temple in the most holy place. And then when the church was born, God sat in the church. And now according to Catholicism, Pope is the God that sits in the church, apparently taking the place of Jesus the Christ. The Lord said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. If he has all authority, that means no one else has any authority unless he de uh, delegates it. Okay? None of us could have authority if Jesus has it all. But if he chooses to give someone some, then that person would have the authority that's been given. But that's the only way they could acquire authority. Jesus said he had all authority in heaven, on earth, which leaves none for anyone else except what is designated in the Holy Scriptures. Paul said Christ is the head, that is the one head. You ever see a body with two heads? Well, Christ is the head of the body, which is his church. And there's only one. Ephesians 4.4. 4. And the church is his body, Colossians 1.18. Jesus is our only potentate. The potentate of the Masons is not a potentate at all. Jesus Christ is the one and the only potentate. There is no other, at least according to him. I suppose it depends on who you believe. Fourth, he, he usurps the throne of God. Again, 2 Thessalonians 2 and 4. First, by making claims that belong only to deity. Again, back to Thomas Newton. Our Lord God the Pope. This is the way he's announced. Our Lord God the Pope. 
another God upon the earth, King of kings and Lord of lords. What a designation to be given to a man. In Acts chapter 12, verses 21 through 23, Herod, in a great assembly in the Colosseum, made a speech to the people there. And the people, because of his outfit made out of metal shining in the sun, they cried out, the voice of a god. And when Herod heard that, he just eat that up. The people calling him a god. Immediately, we're told, an angel of the Lord struck Herod because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. I can think of nothing worse than declaring oneself to be God on earth. This is the opposer of God, certainly not the friend. He refers to, he's referred to as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and yet this designation is applied to Jesus Christ only. He's the only king of the kings and the only Lord of the lords, 1 Timothy 6.15, Revelation 17.14, Revelations 19.16. Paul said when the man of sin arrives, he's going to oppose God. And what I'm show, trying to show you is that is exactly what has happened through the years. Secondly, he presumes to act in the place of deity. Again, back to Donald Atwater, and this comes from the Catholic Dictionary. Absolution is a judicial act whereby a priest remits the sin of a penitent who has contrition, has made confession, and promises satisfaction. I don't have the power to forgive your sins. You don't have the power to forgive my sins. Only the Lord can forgive a human being's sins. He's the one that paid the price for our forgiveness. He's the one that went to the cross and died. He doesn't live in luxury. He never lived in a palace. He was never referred to as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords until after he was dead. And the very idea of a man to assume that role is more than I can imagine. A priest can't forgive a person's sin. When I was a kid, I used to go into the confessional and ask for forgiveness. One time I stole a bubble gum. And when I went to the priest and asked for forgiveness, he told me to say three Hail Marys and to go put the bubble gum back. I didn't have the bubble gum, but I had a penny. And he also forgave me of my sins. He gave me absolution. And I thought, you know, later I thought, how strange. I'm not even a Catholic. And I was forgiven by a priest. Priests can't forgive sins. Only God can. No man can. In Luke 5, 21, the Jews, they knew that. When Jesus forgave sins one day, they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, Jesus can't forgive sins. They didn't know he was God. Jesus can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive a sin. The Jews knew that. The Christians knew that. But in Catholicism, apparently it's not known. They believe men can forgive sins. Bertrand, Bertrand Conway, in uh, talking about 
miraculous powers. I'd just rather use him. Uh, he's a Catholic apologist, and in the Catholic True Society, he wrote, God has allowed his saints to work miracles, to prove their divine commission, to speak in his name, to give the world a clear proof of their imminent sanctity. The church always requires four, in some instances, six miracles before she proceeds to be a fire, canonize a saint. According to the doctrine, we are not saints. In order to be a saint, there are certain qualifications you must have, and it's usually after you're dead. But in the scriptures, all Christians are referred to as saints, saints of God, purified by the blood of Christ, and given that particular designation. Catholicism is wrong in this point also. The Lord did not give men power to work miracles in the 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th centuries. There were gifts given to men to work centuries. That power existed in the first century only. And once it had served its purpose, the miracles were done away with. They were childish things to get through, to convince an unbelieving people that Jesus was Christ, the Son of God. Today we have the Holy Scriptures. We don't need miracles. They are of no value to us today. As far as proving the existence of God, we have all we need in the Holy Scriptures themselves. Sixth, the beginnings occurred in Paul's day. The beginnings, that is, of the falling away. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. He said the thing was already in motion. It's not happening now. It'll happen sometime in the future. But the seeds are being sown even as I write this letter. And it was. Thomas Newton again said the seeds of popery were sown in the apostles' time. This is according to the Catholics in their own writings. The seeds of popery were sown in the apostles' time, which is exactly what Paul said. Idolatry had invaded the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 14. Even in the worship of angels, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18. Men handled the word of God deceitfully, 2 Corinthians 4 and 2. Strife and division were affecting and dividing the church, 1 Corinthians 3 and 3. Gospel truths were sacrificed for the sake of money. In other words, to purchase a church office, you would buy it. To be an elder, for example, usually they hang down the term bishop, and this was in about 90-something A.D. If you wanted to be a bishop in a church, you would have to pay someone a certain amount of money. And if you could do that, you could have the title of being a bishop in the church. This was a way to raise monies for their particular projects. Distinctions were made regarding meats. You couldn't eat meat at certain times of the week, especially Friday. Human traditions crept into the church, Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. My point is very simple. <clears throat> Denominationalism didn't commence in the 7th century. The seeds were sown even as the apostles walked the earth. No doubt, even as Jesus Christ walked the earth, 
the seeds of the falling away were already being sown. And all Paul was doing is prophesying what is going to happen. You see it happening around you. You see the seeds of what's going on around you. This thing is going to get big. It's going to become huge. And it was. Many Christians, millions of Christians, were murdered during these years because they would not bow the knee to this, that, or the other thing. They remained true to their master, the Lord Jesus. Some men, men like Diotrephes, 3 John 9 and 10, and he wanted to be preeminent. He wanted to be the bishop. That was one of the first grand departures that occurred around 94, I believe, A.D. <clears throat> Men were called, like the eldership, we have three elders, uh, and one was, would be called the elder, and the other two would be subservient to him. This started in uh, just at the end of the first century, and it grew and became more and more potent through the years. Seven, the movement was restrained. When you think about this, uh, this religious group that covered millions of people, when you get to, say, 312 A.D., uh, Emperor Constantine made what he called Christianity. He made Christianity the state religion. Well, throughout the Roman Empire, everybody wanted to become a Christian because you want to stay on the good side of the government or they're going to give you a hard time. They're going to raise your taxes. They're going to take your land away. They're going to punish you somehow. If you don't play ball with the people that's running the world, you're going to be in a heap of big trouble. So all the people decided they'd be baptized, and everybody became Christians throughout the empire. Well, with that kind of a population, the men who were running this religious organization, they became very powerful men. They became rulers of armies. There were several different groups that wound up near the end of the 7th century, or the beginning of the 7th century. But there were two that were most prominent, one in uh, Constantinople and the other in Rome. And the emperor decided that Rome would be the primary headship of this massive church. It was huge, bigger than anything that had ever existed, bigger than kingdoms that had come before, bigger than the Grecian kingdom, for example, because it was throughout the empire of Rome. What power or force, therefore, could restrain this man of sin? What could put the brakes on the man of sin? There was only one power that could put the brakes on the man of sin, and that was the Roman government itself. If you have a religious movement in the United States that comes very, very powerful, the only thing that can restrain that group from taking over is the United States government, and that's exactly what would take place. Well, this is what happened back during the 4th and 5th centuries. The church was becoming so powerful that the government kept a close eye on it until it last in 456 A.D., because of the wars Rome was fighting and because of the invasions she experienced during the last 50 or 75 years, she became uh, quite weak. It existed as an empire, but it wasn't strong enough to defeat the clerics of the church, the Roman church. 
as it came to be known. McClintock and Strong, they cite numerous sources, that is the early church fathers, Christians, who wrote to one another, like we do today. We write back and forth to each other about various subjects, problems, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> According to Tertullian, Chrysostom, Hippolytus, and Jerome, and he's got a list of others, the patristic writers generally consider the restraining force to be the Roman Empire. And as you look back over history, that's the only logical deduction you can have. There was nothing that could possibly stop this group that had come to be this religious body. And don't kid yourself, religious people can be just as mean as anybody else. And the Roman church was. Many people died at their hands during the first six centuries before it became an official or church. It was a, uh, a frightful thing to fall into the hands of the priest. If popery is the man of sin, how was it restrained? Historians agree that Imperial Rome fell in 476 and the remaining power shifted to the clerics. When Rome lost her muscle, the clerics picked up her muscle and they became a government of their own. People in all nations bowed the knee to the church and there was no power on earth as powerful as this religious body was. No king can stand up against it. The restraining power was gone and nothing was left to stop the clerics. They grabbed up all the power and became something else. <clears throat> the church grew strong after Rome fell, became really powerful. Jesse Hurlbut, in his book, The Story of Christian Church, says, Emperor Henry IV sought to depose Pope Gregory VII. His book is uh, a demonstration of the power of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. When Henry IV sought to depose Pope Gregory VII, the, the Pope excommunicated the king, but he gave absolution to the people. When he gave the people absolution, that left Henry with no power anymore. He was uh, a king in name only, but no one, no one was gonna pay attention to him because the Pope had excommunicated and cut him off. Pope Gregory excommunicated the emperor, as I just mentioned. In January 1077, the emperor went to Canossa in Northern Italy to beg Gregory's forgiveness. The king had to stand barefoot in the snow for three days uh, waiting to speak to the Pope. Three days in the snow. <clears throat> Makes my feet hurt every time I read that. John Wilder has a volume, The Other Side of Rome, which lists uh, many instances, a lot more than I can show you today. In Germany, Emperor Frederick lay down on the floor and allowed Pope Alexander to stand on his neck. Can you imagine that? A king 
laying down on the floor and letting this man stand on his neck. Of course, he was showing that he could break his neck whenever he wanted to. He could destroy his empire whenever he took a notion to. He was getting his point across. On another occasion, Pope Celestine III crowned Henry VI of England with all the colorful ceremonies. As the English king knelt in front of him after having had the crown of the British Empire placed on his head, the Pope reached forward with his foot and kicked the crown from the monarch's head. Sounds like children to me, but this is uh, things that were happening at the time. At another time, Pope Alexander rode a horseback down the streets of Rome, walking along on either side of his horse and leading the animal by the bridle was Louis, King of France, on one side, Henry, King of England, on the other. They were his servants. This is the kind of power the man of sin came to possess. When Paul talked about the man of sin, I seriously doubt that he had any idea whatsoever of the magnitude of what he was talking about. But as we look back through history, we see amazing things and amazing power that was assumed by Catholicism. Nine, the man of sin, we're told, will return until Jesus Christ comes back. Burton Kaufman, uh, has a, a comment in his uh, commentary, uh, I think a, a good one. Uh, people like me will be mocked because of what I've said over the last four weeks. Uh, the foolishness, what you're saying, this is foolish. These things couldn't have happened, these things wouldn't have happened. It's become uh, common in what we call Christendom. Uh, to mock these kinds of charges against the Roman church. But Burton Kaufman wrote this, the identification of the papacy and its religious apparatus with Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 10 was the prevailing view for more than a thousand years during the time all of this occurred. A view supported by the writings and interpretations of many of the most brilliant men whoever lived on earth, and on that account, there is no way for this writer to accept the sneers, the snickers with which this interpretation is greeted by many modern commentators as being an effective refutation of the arguments upholding it. I've believed this for a good number of years, and this is the first time I've ever talked about it publicly. I've never done it before. Uh, I knew the ridicule that would come with it. I wasn't sure if there's any value to it. But I decided it was time to address the matter uh, after I received the question about it. But um, just let you know what side of the street I'm on. <laughs> Wrong side, like most of the time. In conclusion, and for your study, and I encourage you if you'd like to do it, the little horn of Daniel 7. You want to become familiar with the little horn of Daniel 7, the man of sin whom we just discussed in quite a bit of detail, and then the beast of the book of Revelation, chapter 13. It will continue through chapter 20. Uh, these three characters I believe to be the same character. I believe Daniel was talking about the same being 
that uh, Paul was and that John was. They were all talking about the greatest enemy the children of God ever faced since the beginning of time was by the hands of the man of sin. Read it and see what you think. And I am done with this uh, series. Uh, I've tried to put enough information to get you started, but it's only a start uh, in your own personal studies. Uh, these last four lessons are. Uh, I hope you put them to good advantage. Uh, the most important thing of all is that we understand how wonderfully made we are, how great we are as a being. The greatness that God attached to us, the power that God has bestowed upon us. We have the capacity to be like God. Oh, not in power, but in character. We can be like God in character. And that's what he put us here to do. Before God created the heavens and the earth, he wanted fellowship with a creature just like us. Not in flesh bodies, but a being like you and I. With free will, can make our own decisions. He wanted to have fellowship with us. And he created us with free will, giving each of us a choice to choose God or to choose mammon, whatever we prefer to do, the choice is ours. The wrong choice is to choose mammon because the destiny is uh, unbelievably bad. The right choice is to live up to your legacy to be all that you can be by accepting Jesus Christ as the Son of God and walking in his steps day by day. There is nothing greater on earth than any one of us can do. If you haven't done that, your soul is in peril should you pass from this world today. If you want to be a child of God, you have only to believe that Jesus is his son, repent of your sins, put them away, be immersed in water for forgiveness. As children of God, sometimes we forget that we are children of God and that as children of God, we made a commitment to our Father to walk as closely in the steps of Jesus as we can. Sometimes we miss the mark. All of us do. And we pray to God for forgiveness. And he forgives us. But sometimes we miss the mark. And we may feel the guilt. But we choose not to act on it. We wait for another day, and then another day, and then another day. And what was at one time a sin 
has now become a lifestyle of sin. And it's much harder to turn away from. But it's the wise thing to do.